welcome to the Walter Baisley Movie House, coming to you live from Millbog Manor Studios. I'm your host, Dylan Rorig, here with my engineer, Jason Harris, and our music, as always, is by Jonathan Harmon. Today, we're going into part two with Jack Hill. Honestly, I uh, he was top of my list. When I was making a list of people we wanted to talk to for this podcast, Jack Hill was number one on it. And the second part of this interview, I think, shows why. He is just a delightful human being with great stories and a great outlook on life and the world in general. Hope you enjoy it. Here we go. Going back to Sid Haig, you, you were worked that so you, you worked with him on your student film. He ends up in so many of your movies. Obviously, you guys got along, had a friendship. What was that friendship like? Very close, very close. I, I just... Um... Uh, how can I express it? Uh, he he was he, he was a close friend. The only problem I they reached a point where I couldn't uh, work with him anymore because he got too expensive. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, your actor suddenly is getting big bucks. You know, it doesn't. Yeah. yeah. He uh, he's he was such an interesting guy. Um, I I have friends who knew him through the pottery world because he would throw pots and um, they've always had loads of fun Sid stories and things. Um, as far as his work with you, um, I mean, from Spider Baby to uh, The Big Bird Cage, to, um, Big Dollhouse, all of those movies, he, you were able with him, I think, to do more than most directors in that you were able to get humor as well as that sinister out of him. Sure. Um, I think in uh, later years, he ended up, the humor came out of his sinisterness, uh, whereas you were able, you were more humanizing with him. And that comes across in all of your characters, that you find the humanity in the most despicable people and are able to kind of highlight that on the screen. Is that something you were going for, or is it just something that comes out when you work? I've never been, <clears throat> I've never heard that mentioned before actually but uh uh yeah that was something i was going for but i not as anything unusual i mean normally that's what you want to do when you do a picture or drama mm -hmm. uh, i you succeed in scats i think thank you and i and i i'm really i'm i'm sorry for your loss and losing him um just a couple of years ago it's a very sad loss i know yeah yeah You've you've said that, and this is this is another quote that I found in another article. I feel quite fortunate to have worked in the low budget sector because it meant I did not have to deal with committees who wanted to impose their ideas and prejudices on my material. On the surface, that seems pretty obvious what you're saying, but what specifically were you trying to avoid? I, boy, specifically. Uh... Um, I, I don't, I can't really be specific. It's just a kind of a general thing. Uh, I can just only say that uh, when I did Coffee and Foxy Brown at AIP, that was a studio where, I mean, basically uh, the racism was, uh, doing a black picture was considered like something you don't want to mess with because it's, it's um, uh, how can I, I? It's it's hard. It's hard to describe that. But they just had um, contempt for the work they were doing, and they, the, all the people working under the studio people, 
but I was working for under head of production, Larry Gordon, who was not like that. Mm-hmm. And he supported me in, in just about everything that other people, you know, everybody wants, wants to pick at things because they want to have their hand in it. You know, they just can't, can't resist. And he supported me against all of these suits kind of people that thought this and that, you know, he supported mm-hmm. me and gave me what I wanted. And I always be grateful to him for that. I've read, you said at one point um, when, in referring to coffee, the studio's attitude was you might've had a big hit, but it was with a black picture. So it doesn't really count. Right. And that yeah. was their, their general attitude for it. Cause coffee did, it got great box office. It, and, it worked its way up to number one in the box office. And yeah. Second week. Yeah. And it was a unique film in that it created a character. I think it, it, around that time, exploitation pictures had female leads where something horrible would happen to them in the first act. And then the next three acts were them going around getting revenge for it. And while coffee fits that structure, what's different is she's using her wits far more than previous pictures where it was usually cutting the guy's dick off. In, in coffee, you had something much different happening there. When you were working on that one, how important was that to you? Yeah, that was what I wanted to do. I wanted to, and that's why uh, I really, um, when I was first asked, given this, this assignment, when I was called in and I met with Larry Gordon and he said, we want to do, we want to do a, uh, says a uh, black woman's revenge where she kills the shit out of two guys in the opening scene. And that was, I worked from there, right? Okay. <laughs> but, with, with, but with Pam, see, they were in competition with this, with the um, Jones, what's her name? Uh, the big Warner Brothers movie that came out at the same time, Jones, something or other Jones actress, she was. Oh, Cleopatra Jones? Cleopatra yeah, Jones. yeah. Right. And, and I wanted to do just something just the opposite, where instead of a highly trained, skilled artist and, you know, uh, knows all how to, how to do kickboxing and all this kind of stuff, I want uh, uh, to have a girl that really the audiences could really see themselves in, you know, and not to have any of these skills, but just have these kind of street skills, mm-hmm. you know, like sharpening a bobby pin, right, is yeah. a deadly weapon. I could never come up with anything like that. Pam, she was young and she knew all of this kind of stuff and she gave me the ideas for that. And I wanted to make, the second thing about it was I wanted a character that if she gets in jeopardy, there's no cavalry coming to save her at the end, no off off camera gun fired or anything like that. She has to get out of it herself with her own wits. And I think that's what probably the audience uh, women as well as men uh, identified with or appreciated, yeah. It's definitely cited as a genre changer, uh, just that everything you just described, it kind of changed how those movies started being made after that. And you can see it cinematically as you look at movies that were coming out then behind that one. Um, well, the big thing about it was that it got what they called a crossover audience, so that a black film were just generally considered to be for black audiences, and you make it for a certain budget, you can't go wrong, blah, blah, blah. And this broke that barrier, and, and I think it helped influence uh, the movie making to where they've, they're realizing that, that you could draw a big black audience 
as well, and a white audience as well. And what I mean, what they call a crossover. And so since that time, you find black characters and lifestyles in almost every, every film other than, you know, historical. And uh, even even that sometimes. So I think it made a, it made an influence. Definitely. So we'll, we'll back up just a little bit then. So you first cast Pam with uh, the big, um, not the big dollhouse. It was yeah, yeah was, the big dollhouse yeah, was the was the, yeah. the first one you you cast her in. Yeah. Uh, did was that just through an audition process? How did you become aware of her? Uh, we had a basically there was a uh, an an agent and maybe more than we just put out a call for actresses of a certain type for a certain age for a certain kind of kind of movie. And um, it's what they used to call a cattle call, you know, and which most players find um, demeaning, you know. But I was yeah. casting a, I was casting an ensemble, and I wanted to see. I would have actresses read with each other, you know, this kind of mm -hmm. thing to see how the contrasts played. And I wanted to have at least one one uh, black uh, player actress, and she just came in on a cattle call, and she just impressed me. I mean, in that first meeting, I, I thought she had what we used to call authority, you know, and that's very important. You know, mm -hmm. you look at her when she's on screen and yeah. I, she'd never done anything except to walk on in the Russ Meyer movie, as I'm sure you Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, but she took it very seriously and worked very hard, did a great job. And it was just basically I just took a chance on her and happened to be <laughs> happened to be right. Yeah. At what point did you realize in her you had lightning in a bottle? Well, when I saw the, the, the finished picture, I mean, the, yeah. um, well, I mean, when we were shooting, I, I, I saw it, but they were all, they were all pretty good actresses. Yeah, yeah but she was uh, just really unusual. Yeah, she <clears throat> definitely stands out. And of course, then you end up working with her quite a bit. I'm assuming, like Sid, you had a, you have a friendship there as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Actually, she she and Sid like like working together too. Uh, I always thought of them as my uh, uh, Tracy and Hepburn. <laughs> nice. <laughs> I could see that. Actually, <laughs> the poor man's Tracy and Hepburn. <laughs> yeah. um, so when you're making, there was a. I, and in fact, this just comes up. I, I do movie screenings um, on, sometimes around town here, and uh, we watched Sugar Hill this past week, and that was another black exploitation film uh, directed with a white director. The differences in style between what you were doing and what uh, Maslansky did with that, and it was the only movie he ever directed, so I take it with a grain of salt there. But on when I watch your films, there is definitely a social consciousness there that is in, in Sugar Hill, it's there, but it's very ham fisted. Yours seems more genuine, more from the heart. Is that a good read? Is that that I'm making there? Yeah. I tried for it, you know. But mm -hmm. That's uh, <clears throat> yeah. Thank you. Were, were you uh, sure? <laughs> were you in, were you actively involved in uh, the civil rights fight? uh actively no not 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 living in hollywood much no right yeah yeah it was kind of already a foregone conclusion there for you guys i imagine aside from the studio heads of course um what aside from dealing with that kind of studio kind of that that 
institutionalized racism that the studios were feeding you. Uh, what else were you dealing with there as a director? Were you were you getting tarred with a, um, a moniker of, oh, he only does black films. We don't want him for this. I believe so. That's what I believe. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's something I imagine that it's, you know, it's probably not even worth fighting. It's it's not only does black films. I, obviously, I didn't just only do black films. Mm -hmm. but my biggest hits at that time were black films. Yeah, well, I, I did get some some attention uh, from people from uh, people who just saw that they thought that I was a good uh, writer director, but uh, nothing came of it. <clears throat> right. Writing wise, uh, you've got a, a pretty prolific writing career. You've got IMDb only has 21 credits for you, but I know that you have written I, on countless things. And I know that a lot of scripts may have a central writer credited, but they've got, you know, a hundred other people who punch up and work on it. Had you been doing a lot of that during that time as well? No, no, not really. No? No. Okay. That came a little later. I, I know when you, uh, after Sorceress, um, you were doing a lot of writing outside of that, if I'm not wrong there. Not uh, not for movies, no. Oh, okay. Okay. What what were you writing for then? Uh, I, I'd rather keep that quiet. Okay. So. No, no worries at all. That's fine. I, we talked a little bit about the uh, what I feel is the empathy and that you show in your directing and you've cited that in the early 80s um it, a lot of people kind of consider that you just left film entirely which is not correct but you certainly backed out a little bit and you credit um a spiritual change in your life uh this and that you and your wife started working with the sidha institute out in uh hollywood is that correct well, we, we met swami muktananda who at that time was being called uh the guru to the stars or something like that. He had his picture on the cover of Time magazine. And, uh, and uh, uh, that was a turning point in, in my life and for my wife as well. Yeah, when we met, we knew that this was the real thing. And do you still pursue that today? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I did it this morning. <laughs> Lovely. I, I asked about that because I, what I see in your directing, that empathy, that's there is the sort of thing that actually um, with Sid Haber, we talk about that idea of the, it, it means the perfected one, that idea of the being who is in total enlightenment, um, having the empathy that I believe you do, at least that I see come across in your films. What, I, when you met the Swami was, was it almost like this has always been here in me? I just didn't realize it. I think, I, I don't know. I never thought of it that way, but that's probably true. That's, that's, that's the, uh, how can I put it? The, uh, the understanding that uh, everybody in that path has. And what was it when you guys met him? What was it that touched you? so strongly and made you want to follow that path? Well, it started out when I was, I was really trying to write and I, and I uh, was, uh, my, I wasn't really, um, it was difficult for me. And I wanted, I thought, well, let me take a, I, there was a uh, 
class in a community college close by there in, in meditation called Siddha Meditation. So I thought, all right, maybe this will help me writing, you know, because I'd heard that that was good. And um, so when I first met, when I first got in that, into that, the, uh, the girl who was teaching the class was a, uh, was a disciple of, of Swami Muktananda. And I, I just found it already so from the first moment, so moving the whole principle that uh, I asked my, <laughs> well, this is an anecdote. I don't know if you want to hear. I do. She, yeah, absolutely. But I was, she, 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 later, she later told people that she thought in this class that I was in that I was really skeptical, you know, that I really looked like I didn't skeptical. And at the end of the class, I said, can I bring my wife next time? <laughs> And next time I brought my wife and we both said, we both felt this, this is something, this is something that we, that we're, we're for. Yeah. Is it, it's, so at that point in your life, had you been, had you been looking for something? No, no. I, like I say, I got into it because I thought maybe it helped me writing. <laughs> right. Just, just for that. Yeah. I, I had no idea, but uh, you know, since then, of course, I've, I've learned that well, a lot more. So what has the meditation done for you aside from, from help center that and help you with your writing and, and obviously change your life? What specifically has it helped you with? <laughs> change your life. I mean, that's, that's, that's about the uh, covers it, you know? Yeah. I mean, uh, basically, I, I don't know. It's just, it's just, it, it's just that first of all, it's a path that, that, that you're on. And it's like, it's like, um, how can I put it? Uh, uh, well, I mean, it's such a commonly understood path in the, in the, in in India mostly, but you have to realize that that it, that's a long story. I, it's tough to get into. That it's just a way of seeing life and seeing the world mm -hmm. and your position in it. You know that you realize this is the truth. That's all. I yeah. yeah. I'm, I, I'm curious about it. When I read about that with you, I'm, I'm on a similar path myself, more recently yeah. discovered, um, where I, I kind of woke up one day and realized I'd accidentally become Buddhist. Um, I, I hadn't, I hadn't been searching for anything. Just all of a sudden, one day I realized, well, this just happened. Well, well, um, you, you just reminded me of what happened. Um, in earlier times there, I was, dropping acid and that was my mm -hmm. first real spiritual experience if you've mm -hmm. ever done that you might know what i'm talking I'm, about. i'm familiar yeah <laughs> i suddenly saw myself as a part of as a part you know one with nature yeah. i had that feeling and that stayed with me and i and then when i got into this i realized that's this is the real thing not 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 something you swallow you know <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, this, but that was my glimpse, you know, into the, into what, what it was all about. Well, that's good for you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, I think I'm, I'm a big advocate of hallucinogens and useful dosages. And I think it, it yeah. gives every person a chance to kind of expand how they think and see things. Yeah. Um, I just actually introduced someone to their first experience with it. And she's been very thankful since just for that that consciousness expansion yeah, that it sure. allows. Yeah. <clears throat> and so when you started then on the path of meditation for that, did that just negate the use of any of that for you anymore? Did you, oh, yeah, were you able to abandon that. all that? And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I wouldn't, would never touch it again. Yeah. 
That's fantastic. So back in the 60s, I'm sure that, you know, the drug culture was huge, especially in filmmaking. Um, there, there's famous stories of uh, Roger Corman taking LSD with Peter Fonda for the trip and things like that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you were there for that experience or not. But um, with all of that going on around you um, and you're discovering this path, how easy was it to pull yourself away from that then? Pull myself away from uh, from from just the influence of um, that the drug culture that was constantly surrounding everything you worked in at that time. Uh, I was never really into, you know, a, a drug culture much. Um, but it was definitely there around you. Well, back in the sixties, you know. I'm yeah, <laughs> sure, sure. Right. Yeah. And I and I and, and I, you know I'll make a slight little admission here when I when I first started working on on the screenplay of, of uh, coffee, uh, no let me see was it that one, um, yeah oh I know I know what it was when I had Foxy Brown it was something I I didn't really really want to do, I uh, did a little line of cocaine once in a while to free up free myself up from. Mm -hmm. You know, to open up so that I would I I could work with ideas that I would otherwise have been hesitant to work with. You know, and what what were the things that were bothering you with about that script? Um, it was it, it was a really fast. It was a kind of a last minute decision on the part of the studio. I don't know if you're familiar with, uh, but I had. Uh, I had really blown it with AIP by walking out on a screening that they invited me to. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's something you don't do in Hollywood. Did you want to talk about that at all? It was, uh, no, it was uh, Dillinger. I showed Dillinger and, and I thought it was so, so uselessly violent. And, and But who was the guy who, who directed? He, he did a lot well, of... Um... I'd he have wrote, to look it up. I, I, well, he wrote Apocalypse Now, actually, the screenplay. I can't think of his name right now. Um, Milius. Yeah, John Milius. 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 Right, and the, and the studios thought this was going to be their big picture, their big winner for the for for the for that season, you know. Mm -hmm. And it turned out, and they and I was just blacklisted. I mean, it was even my agent said, "What have you done?" You know. Wow. <laughs> right. Wow. And it turned out that uh, that uh, coffee actually made more for the studio than it did, even though it was, uh, you know, <laughs> right. And that that was really the case of that. You know, that's something you really don't do. <laughs> but the head of the, the the owner of the studio, Samuel Arco, uh -huh. was interested in in making money. You know, he didn't yeah. have feelings of pride and hurtfulness you know so he he, he they got that they needed to get me back to do a sequel you know to yeah. coffee and it was originally a sequel and it was the title was burn coffee burn and it was only at the last minute just before we started shooting that the uh the sales department in the studio, which is very important you know you listen mm -hmm. to the sales department they said sequels aren't doing well so we don't want this to be a sequel so they came up with the idea of the name coffee, the name of uh, of, uh, of uh, Foxy Brown, which I thought was, in my stupidity, I thought that was kind of demeaning, and it turned out to be just the opposite. Right. <laughs> so I changed the name and uh, altered the script a little bit, you know, to to to, to fit. But uh, when I took took that assignment, I is something I didn't 
didn't really want to do. And I knew that everybody at the studio hated me, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> except, except for, except for um, uh, who was the head of the production? I just mentioned his name, Larry, Larry Gordon. Yeah, mm -hmm. Larry Gordon. He was a, he was a, a cut above most of the people there in terms of character. And he's, he's, but it was a last minute thing. It was a quickie, you know, I had to mm -hmm. do something right away. So basically what I thought I was doing was, was coming up all of the ideas that I had discarded for the first time, and now I can use them. <laughs> and uh, just try to get something. I, I didn't, I didn't have time to really create what I would have thought would be a, a real proper sequel. So I just tried to make it as outrageous as I could, sure, just to attract attention. Which that's what happened, I guess. And today, I mean, over the years, it's been the more popular uh, cult. Cult movie. Yeah. I mean, my residuals on it are much bigger than the ones on coffee. So. Nice, good. Oh, well, <laughs> it's a really good movie. Foxy Brown, I think, is, oh, yeah, what have I done? But it, yeah. has, it has some stuff in it. You know, uh, one uh, writer, a book, uh, there's a book about exploitation movies. I can't remember the name of it right now, but he described, he, he described, there's a scene in there in a, uh, you know, Hollywood movies usually, used, very often, would have a barroom brawl scene where everybody gets into a fight. Mm -hmm. It was a kind of a tradition. So my barroom brawl was a lesbian car, right? right. And this writer, he's, he's described it. He said, the occupants of, of the bar make the Teamsters look like the Rockettes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, that's what I was going for, right? <laughs> so I had fun with it in the end, you know, And uh, but, the, but the people in the studio just, uh, they all just, I mean, the studio people, not all of them, the people I worked with, like the cameraman was, you know, so, but um, they, uh, they had nothing, they, you know, like I said before, that contempt for the movies they were making in uh, black films. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yeah. I didn't even get invited to a screening. When the picture was finished, I had to go to a theater and see it. Oh, you really pissed him off, huh? <laughs> uh -huh. I, I was not invited to uh to the dub you know where they yeah. usually you know they they didn't even tell me when they were going to do it wow yeah you mentioned sam arkoff and of course his name and cult film are pretty much synonymous with one another what are you do you have any good stories about him aside from he was pissed at you <laughs> arkoff was not no no he was oh not. he wasn't okay no no everybody else was but he he for years after that until he got kicked out of the of his own company, he sent me a bottle of bourbon and a bottle of scotch for Christmas every year. Nice. That's yeah. wow. Except I didn't care much for bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. was it? What was AIP like? I mean, aside from the the stuff we've talked about, just as far as because they were, you know, throwing out movies left and right. It was kind of a grindhouse of sorts with the with maybe a little bit more of a budget. Um, well, you know, after, after Foxy Brown turned out to be a turned out to be a, a big hit, they offered me another 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 project, another script to do because that's you know when you're making money for them, money. What do, what do they say? Money talks, and a lot of money is talks eloquently. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And they offered it was called Rape Squad, and I said I thought it was just awful. awful. Yeah. And I, but I said I needed to work, so I said I I. For me to do this, I'd have to do a major rewrite in the script. Mm -hmm. And that was it. No, forget it. 
So I was very happy. This is, you know, I was very happy when that turned out to be a big flop. And I went on to make the Swinging Cheerleaders, which right. was a big hit. Yeah. That really finished me at that, 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 I hated, <laughs> you know, that's what, that's what people really hate you for. You turn down their script and you go and make, theirs is a flop and you go and make another one on your own and it's a hit. Yeah. So it, with the Swinging Cheerleaders, uh, we, we keep jumping. I know I jump around here a little bit and I apologize, I but um, a couple people from that, of course, that stand out. Well, Colleen Camp, um, yeah. a great uh, actress. Um, for those who don't know, uh, the the maid in Clue um, is Colleen Camp uh, that she started out with Swinging Cheerleaders. Uh, but also Bob Miner, and I don't think he gets enough uh, credit in the world. I think he's a, what are your memories of him? Because you kind of uh, brought him into an acting role. He'd been doing some stunt work, if I recall correctly. Well, he was a stuntman. Yeah, one of the big problems we had uh, with uh, making a black picture, uh, with uh, coffee, was that th there were almost no black stuntmen. There were very few black stuntmen with very little and, and most of them, they hardly had any experience. And there was zero black stunt women. And we, our script, my script required stunts. Mm -hmm. uh, Pam did a lot of her own, but uh, Bob Miner, they wanted to have, um, they wanted to have as much as possible um, include black people behind the camera because they were getting a lot of complaints from in, in the press that they were they were uh, taking advantage you know of the black audience and not using black people behind the camera but there, there were no there were no trained experienced people of any kind and uh, stuntmen so Bob Miner had he was a stunt guy and we needed a stunt what they called a stunt gaffer that's a guy who directs the, who finds the people to do it and tells them what to do and the safety and all this and that stuff and he was totally new at it so um uh, yeah so there were problems we were worried about people getting injured and things sure. like this. but he he did it he did a good job and uh, so we got him back uh, and I, so i used him as an actor also because mm -hmm. he I thought he was talented as an actor and uh, gave him you know more involvement with the picture than just being yeah so uh, i worked with him for on several 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 pictures yeah i worked with him on yeah on uh, swinging cheerleaders he mm -hmm. was yeah, I used him as an actor. Yeah, also, that's right. Yeah, yeah. And he's a lot of fun in it. Uh, George Wallace also is in that one. Um, yeah. What are your memories good. of him? Yeah, what are, what are your memories of George Wallace? Just that he was, he just really did a great job. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that's all. It was just, he's, he comes across as just a character, you know, yeah. just one of those people yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> might always be on or something. Yeah, we've been looking. We had a very good cast in that in that uh, show. Yeah, and and box office wise, you know that one's as you as you mentioned, that's one that came through for you and and for the the production company you made a lot of money. Um, when you're making these movies, uh, of course, you know making money is important for you mm -hmm. to be able to make the next one. Um, but as is the artistry of it, when you're doing that. How much for you as you as you were making these movies were you looking at the dial of the box office as well as what you were trying to say with that film both i i don't know i that's like that's a concept that i 
hadn't really thought about it. <laughs> I think when, I mean, if you really do it right, you're going to get the box office, but uh, it wasn't always the way it works. Right. <laughs> you have uh, your final movie that you directed, uh, at least up to this point, is Sorceress, and that you worked with uh, Jim Lenarski on. And you're credited as Brian Stewart in that as the director. Uh, is there a reason you use the surname? Or a I'm, I'm pseudonym, I'm sorry. Pseudonym. Yeah, I didn't want my name on it. That was a horrible experience. Uh, uh, Jim Minersky, I had not even met, so it's, I did not work with Jim. Okay, okay. I met him. Was it just bad because uh, dealing with production people, just the, the entire concept itself? It's it's a saga of, <laughs> you know, a monstrous saga of how it started, what we went through. It was at first, at first he wanted to shoot the picture in the Philippines. And, and I said, Roger, it's, just, it's set in Central Asia, you know. <laughs> and then so, so then he had some kind of screwy deal in, uh, in Portugal. He thought he had, he had this guy that he, in, in France, I can't think of his name right now, that he had worked with a few times, thought he could put together things and he thought he could put together getting financing in mm -hmm. Portugal. In Portugal, the only movie you could show would be a, would be a, a, a TV commercial. You know, they had absolutely <laughs> no, no production ability whatsoever. And I told Roger and he said, just, just go down and shoot it on, on the beach. You know, well, in Portugal, you cannot, you know, the beaches are all bright. You cannot, and there's no beach in the story. And I was wondering what was going on. And then he, and then, uh, and then he said, "We got a deal in, in Italy." And now, now we're talking sense. They could shoot it in. Italians uh, do a lot of shooting. In was it in Libya at the time? They had, uh, yeah. yeah, 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 a lot of Italian, and so they would have had the the stuff to to do a movie shot in Asia, right? And so that was great. So we went to, I was, my wife was with me. So, so we went to, um, yeah, let me see. Yeah, so we, so we went to Rome, go to Rome. So we went to Rome and they, they loved the script. They wanted to do it. Um, they were working on a budget. All of a sudden I get a call from my, says, go to Mexico. I got a better deal in Mexico. Oh, All right, so you wanted a saga, this is a saga. So we go to Mexico. And it was fine because they really, the Mexicans, they're a good industry there and they really wanted to do something really good. They liked this idea of a movie and they wanted to build these big sets and have their great locations. They had stuntmen, they had everything, you know, that you, you could want. So uh, we started working in Mexico and um, there was one problem there. It, things were slow. I mean, uh, we had a lot of rain and um, I'll just give you one example of the kind of problems we had. We had a, a, a sound stage, have big sound stages there. We had our set all ready to shoot on our sound stage in the next, uh, the next morning. And all of a sudden we go and everything's gone. All the equipment is gone. It turns out, who's the guy that did Dune? What's his name? David Lynch. No, no, the producer, Italian producer. Produced oh, I. It was I one know. big, big Italian producer. I can't think of his name. Anyway, De Laurentiis was it Dino De Laurentiis? Yeah, yeah, and he yeah, yeah, yeah. And I met him later, very interestingly. But anyhow, he had taken over the studio 
for this for this big big budget dune so we had nothing we couldn't shoot because all the lighting equipment was gone <laughs> he took it this is the kind of stuff that's just one example you know the kind of stuff we were we, we were up against but anyhow um the but the big problem there was that the industry was changing there was the drive-in theaters which most of the roger corman's movies and other they, they, the drive-ins were the, were the big right the big business there they were not doing well because there was home home video was beginning to come in and people were staying home watching and so roger's company was not doing well and so he wanted to yeah so um part of part of the the, the of what i had been looking forward to in this project was that Roger had his own special effects studio, which was doing a lot of really good work, not just for his own pictures, but for other people too. Mm -hmm. And uh, so written into the script was all kinds of really great effects stuff. And um, he was having difficulty because the business was falling, was not doing well. So, um, well, just to make a long, longer story short, instead of all of this stuff, that had been written into the script. Uh, he just, just just didn't do it. For example, I had scenes where I had uh, monks, monks chanting, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and what he did, you see the, in, in the finished picture, you see the guys chanting and you don't hear any sound. I mean, it was just full of stuff like that where what was written in the script and what I'd been expecting, he just didn't do it because it cost money. So the whole thing, <clears throat> yeah, and he cut he cut it down because he cut the the. Uh, it was originally going to be uh, you know ninety hundred ten minutes or so movie, which in the, you know was uh, the common usual in those days, mm -hmm. and he cut it down so much to save print costs. Oh my gosh! Because prints cost so much per foot. So if your picture runs. 100 minutes and you can cut it down to 80 minutes you've saved so the guts of the picture were just all the touches that i wanted to make you know the nice little things are pop, 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 gone and for example there's an example there's a scene in this uh, there's a night scene in this temple mm -hmm. and in the script, what was supposed to happen was that behind the, the temple in the background was like a whole city right yeah yeah in the finished picture there's nothing you're just looking off the top of the set. There's nothing there. <laughs> so he didn't want to pay for. He didn't want to pay. Oh, I didn't want my name in the picture. And then there was there was more like with the money and things like that uh, that uh, that I don't I don't even want to go into. But um, yeah. So I took my name off the picture. But Roger was was furious with me because he told me to stop shooting. The day before we had the big finals, the big final climactic scene in the movie. We were rained out and I was going to do it the next day. He told me to stop shooting because it would cost him too much to go another day. And I just went ahead and did it anyway. So wow. when I got back, I mean, Roger was, you can imagine, you know, what, what that did. Yeah. But the, the, the ending of the story is the picture bad as terrible as all of these things were all of these things missing it turned out to be very good grossing movie yeah. <laughs> a lot of money over it, it. <laughs> it helped it helped having um a very uh, sparse wardrobe budget for uh, the two leads 
probably helped with the box office a little. <laughs> yeah, of course, the mix. Oh, oh, I know, I know what I want to say about it. The uh, the budget, yeah. The uh, I was supposed to get a percentage of of the profits, which I always went to. Okay, the he cut the picture so short that it could not be sold overseas. Wow. And 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 for example, the. Um, I can't remember the the British guys. The two British guys were were um, one of them was a famous actor. I can't remember their names right now. But anyway, anyway, yeah, they, the, um, the the David Milburn and Bruno Ray. Are you talking no, about them? Oh no, no, no! I can't remember their name. They're very well known. Well, actor is very well known. Any and I can't remember his name right now. But anyhow, <laughs> anyhow, I was supposed to get a percentage of foreign sales on that of uh, video, home video sales and all this and that. Um, they, put, they put down the negative cost as $500,000. Their negative cost was zero because the Mexican government paid it, paid for it. So in other words, they, that would have been deducted right. from, from profit. So basically my percentages on a successful picture were zero. Wow. Roger. <laughs> Foreman did the same thing, I, they, but I don't want to go yeah. there. <laughs> Despite the fact that you used a pseudonym that were his kids' names, that didn't soften, soften the blow for him at all? <laughs> I don't know. He came up with that. Did one. he do that? I, that I was told him. him I wanted to use the name Joseph, Joseph Blau. Okay. What's, who's Joseph Blau? on that it was Joe Blow. Joe Blow. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't recognize that at first. He thought that was okay. And then when his, his lawyer told him, you know, no, no his, lawyer, his lawyer said, I told his lawyer that's the name I wanted to use. He, oh, okay, that's fine. And Roger said, that's me, Joe. <laughs> so they changed it, you know. <clears throat> you, there's somebody who worked on that film that I have to ask you about. Uh, he, he worked as a second unit director and also worked some on visual effects. And that's John Carl Beekler. Did you have any interactions with him? Oh, yeah, yeah. He was a great guy. He did wonderful work. Yeah. I he's one of my favorite directors, one of my a, a, incredible effects guy. And this was one of his earliest films. Uh, did you get the feeling then, especially with the effects work, of course, on this, where you're dealing with that sort of budget, um, it, it kind of shows. <laughs> but did you get the feeling that uh, he had that talent and was going to go somewhere with it? Oh, yeah. I thought it was excellent. The work he did was excellent. Yeah. Did you maintain a friendship with him over time then? Uh, well, we just we were not really uh, in, in contact. But uh, yes, I, we, we had a friendship, but we, yeah. we were not working together because there was no opportunity for that. Right. So after Sorceress, You've stopped. You haven't made any movies since then. And I know that. And, and what I've read is a lot of that had to do with the spiritual path you were on, that some of that, uh, that's that stuff started to fall away in importance to you as happens, obviously, when you start reaching a higher path. What are you doing now? Aside from writing memoirs, I know you said. Well, I interrupted. Yeah, no, I uh, <clears throat> I was working on a, on a novel. I had about two thirds of the way through when uh, I discovered my father's letters from that he wrote home from uh, when he was in France and he was a flyer in the First World War. Mm -hmm. I heard it within that. So I, I worked on that for a long time, his letters, and I published, I got this together. And in fact, my, my um, literary agent is working on trying to find a publisher for it. And it's like a, like a kind of a hist work of history, but it's a, it's what I would call a, um, a, a, uh, um, what's the what's the word for a novel that's letters? 
a historical fiction? No, no, not no, no. It's, it's nonfiction. It's um, uh, I can't think of a word right I'm now. Sorry, but Jack. It, I'm not sure what you're looking for. It reads like it reads like 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 a novel. And it's is and he he wrote all of these letters with illustrations on them. And then later he went on to do the Disneyland Castle, and that's all of this stuff is there, and including um, art pieces of art that he got. Uh, he was, uh, you ever heard of uh, Kiki de Montparnasse, the famous model? She was in Paris in the 20s. She was like the, the hottest, she was like a iconic symbol, Kiki. She did some silent films, didn't she? Yes, yes. Yeah, the uh, uh, Live Empire. With Man Ray. Yeah, yeah. Well, my okay. dad had a, had a relationship with her and he um, got a very interesting, uh, he, all his, his letters describing all his experiences learning to fly Mm -hmm. And all his experiences on the ship going over to taking him over to France for the war, and then all his experiences in the training in France, and it reads like a novel. You know, he has these romances with different girls, and then he has this affair with Kiki de Montparnasse after the war in the in the twenties, and uh, and then uh, yeah, and uh, he's got he's got two two pictures, two drawings by Picasso of wow. Of, Kiki, and uh, a couple by Man Ray as well. He, he was good friends with Man Ray. So he's got all these, so it reads so much like a novel. And, uh, but it's, uh, it's a tough sale on the market, you know, because sure. people, unless you read it, you, you don't know what you're in for. And he's, cause he got drawings, colored drawings all the way through of, of, on, on the letters as well. Yeah. Was, so he, was he still alive when you found those? No, 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 no. What was no. it like for you as a as a son? You you find this this part of your father's life that maybe you weren't that aware of. Totally, yeah, yeah. Like it's like a discovery. Yeah. Just feel I, like getting no, to know him I again. Always, no, I, I always I always saw him as kind of a shy guy who did who worked at the studio and basically other people getting credit for his work. You know, most of the time, and. Uh, but but doing the Disneyland Castle, of course, then that was a real, he really loved that. But I mean, um, to find out the, the adventures that this guy went through. Yeah. It just, you know, he crashed twice and never got a scratch and yeah, this kind of stuff. Wow. I imagine a couple times you're reading those and thinking it's a wonder that you're even here. Uh-huh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, 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 so, but I got the literary agent working on trying to find a publisher, and, but it took me, I spent a lot of time working on that one, and uh, right now I'm working on my memoirs because this literary agent thinks he can do something with that. <clears throat> I'm certain, uh, that sounds, I, I'm looking forward to reading those to be quite honest. Okay, well, <laughs> it'll be a little while yet, but uh, it'll be there, yeah, and uh and uh, yeah, no, it's just, um, yeah, that's, that brings, brings you up to date, I guess. <clears throat> so you, you've, I, I mean, you're, it's like you've lived several lives here as we talk. What do you think, what do you think your legacy is just overall? I mean, with film, I think it's pretty obvious. What, what do you feel your legacy is or what would you like it to be? I, I don't I don't know. I never really thought of a legacy. Although the only thing, like I mentioned before, is that I feel I had some uh, I had some some something to do with bringing about black characters and lifestyle into into mainstream films. But I wasn't the only one. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Well, you were definitely one of the most influential, I believe. Uh, certainly, uh, Pam Greer alone changed how people looked at those films, I think. And uh, like I say, Coffee alone, I think, changed how the ingenue in an action film worked. Um, it, 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 it's a definite trajectory shift, I think, for most of cinema at that time. Yeah, you know, I um, I, I went into, I, I watched... Uh... I went to a, to a theater in a, in a black neighborhood in Pasadena to to, to see how the audience reacted to coffee, mm -hmm. and I was, I it was almost frightening because they people would yell back at the screen, you know, talk back to the actors, and even stand up and say, "Kill him, kill him," you know. This mm -hmm. is a little scary. <laughs> and then the reviewer, <clears throat> reviewers were afraid to go into into, into theaters, you know, black theaters, and. Uh, but so this reviewer for coffee from the LA Times went to the drive-in theater to review the movie. And he said that people honked their horns after every violent thing and every dirty line. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, now that's, that, you know, you're asking me for, you know, for, yeah. That, so that I'm sure felt pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. This is catharsis, you know. Yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean yes. well, that's actually fantastic. I felt pretty good. I thought I had accomplished what you're supposed to accomplish with theater. Oh, that <laughs> that's a good legacy. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you have... Um, I, I, I could literally sit here and talk to you about each movie uh, for an hour each, but I, I don't want to take up any more of your time. I'm so appreciative of you doing this. I'll be in my memoirs. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. We'll let them, we'll, we'll just hold out and then people can read about the rest of it. You know, I just want add one thing more. It might be interesting. I once uh, at a convention that I went to, a black uh, uh, woman came up to me and she said about coffee, she said, you know, my mother made me watch that movie so I would know what things were like in those days. Wow. Okay, finito. That's beautiful. <laughs> Jack, thank you so much. Did you feel good, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thank you. Always fun to talk to a fan. <laughs> thank you. There you go, that's Jack Hill. What an interesting, interesting guy. I cannot wait for those memoirs to come out. Uh, it's October. It's a spooky month. That means in a couple weeks, we'll have a new guest up, and that guest will be Butch Patrick, Eddie Munster himself. Only had him for about an hour, but uh, it was a great hour. We spent a lot of time talking about um, things he doesn't talk about a lot in other podcasts. Um, I'd, give you, I'd, I'd encourage you guys uh, to go out and listen to his interview on Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal podcast. It's certainly... Um, one of the funniest and he does not hold back when he talks about his drug and alcohol days um, he's uh, he's really a, a great guy and I really appreciate him taking the time to talk with us uh, hey you know what uh, the world is opening up still more uh, get back out there in it but be safe and take care of your servers tip them well because at the Walter Paisley movie house we do not piss on hospitality till next time kids 